Our series began on October 16th, and 12 sermons later, here we are. And our hope is that in these sermons, you have had your understanding of the local church fine-tuned, and I hope that by looking carefully at God's Word, you have gotten yourself a clearer and more consistent teaching on the local church. And today, I want to preach one final time and try to pull the whole series together. But since this series has taken exactly five months and touched on such significant issues, I wonder if you're finding it slightly difficult to hold all the different pieces together. Sometimes a longer uh, topical series like this one can feel a bit disjointed, like a bunch of random letters and symbols on a page. And what can be really, really helpful is taking all those disparate thoughts and showing how they all fit together into one clear message, the church, God's plan for your best life now. Okay, that is the end of Pastor Paul's attempt at visual arts. Let's turn that off and turn on the lights. You know, sometimes you, you just try things. Uh, we have framed this series by trying to follow uh, an individual, a person, a man or a woman, from the moment of their conversion through their life in the church up until the time they meet with the Lord in glory. And there have been sort of five stages or five areas that we have examined. First of all was conversion. And so we began by looking at that thief on the cross. Remember him? Again, listen to what J.C. Ryle says, because I don't think anyone has ever said it better than this. This thief was never baptized. He belonged to no visible church. He never received the Lord's Supper. He never did any work for Christ. He never gave money to Christ's cause, but he had faith, and so he was saved. Point made, J.C. Ryle. Thank you very much. Baptism, membership, the Lord's Supper, discipline, not even covenants, confessions, and constitutions can save anybody. Jesus saves. But we wanted to trace out the more typical path than someone who's getting converted as they're dying on a cross. And think about the more typical experience of conversion. So we laid out, first of all, that first step of obedience, which is baptism, where you identify with Jesus and his people, that initiation rite that follows very shortly after conversion. So baptism and membership. We saw how all the baptisms in the New Testament are of adults or of people who can give mature mental assent to the facts of the gospel and show a willingness to follow Christ. And we saw how baptism functions like a swearing-in ceremony uh, when you become a Canadian citizen. The moment you're sworn in, you become part of a new community uh, at that very moment. And so baptism is doing a lot of things. It's doing things for you. It's doing things in the life of the church. Uh, it's declaring that you're one with Christ by faith. 
It, it's, it's you declaring that, that Christ has gone before you and he's going to carry you through the waters of judgment safely. Baptism is you being a demonstration that Jesus Christ has washed all of your sins away. And this initiation rite leads to being numbered with the church. The church, what is the church? The ecclesia, do you remember what it means? The gathering. It's simply a word that means a gathering of people, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering. And the the local church, as we know it, is a group of saved people who identify with one another and seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship God and proclaim his word, affirm one another's profession of faith by the right practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and display to the world the, the gospel of God by their authentic love for one another. We looked at Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 28 to see how Jesus was building his gathering, his ecclesia, uh, and he's building it with a a what and a who. Uh, What is true about him? That's the good confession of Matthew 16. And who believes this truth about him? Those who truly confess live a certain way. That's Matthew 18. And how then it was up to his representatives on the earth, the existing local church, to make judgments on the who and the what. In other words, to use what what Matthew or what Jesus called in Matthew's gospel the keys of the kingdom. What do the keys do? The keys loose and the keys bind. So when uh, new people come into the area and they say, I'm a Christian, we say, well, let's hear your what. What do you confess about Christ to be true about the gospel? We need to understand that you understand the gospel. And then your who. Do you live a life that is generally in line with that confession of who Jesus is? If you have a good confession and you live like a Christian, we will bind you to us. To whom? the local church. And if your confession is incorrect or your life does not line up with that confession, we will loose you from us, who's the us, the local church. And that took us to think about how the church itself is structured. Once a person is baptized, made a member of the church, they join a group of fellow members who have organized themselves around the three C's, the confession Uh, the Constitution, and the Covenant. Confession, a confession of faith. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about um, a lot of things, but primarily about the good news of Jesus. It's what we agree we all believe. We see that, first of all, in Matthew 16, where Peter makes a good confession, and Jesus says, yeah, you didn't even come up with that by yourself. Uh, That came from you from the Father. And so that is the good confession. And churches have confession. We have one. It says these are the things we think the Bible teaches um, that are very important that we need to all agree about in order to function as a church. We also have a covenant, the member's covenant, membership covenant. And in the covenant, we're agreeing to treat each other a certain kind of way. A covenant is just a promise. It's an oath, kind of contract where you, you express your pledge to do something. And this covenant is really just a summary of most of what the Bible teaches or commands about how Christians are to treat one another. We couldn't write them all out because then we would be writing the New Testament. So we summarize into a church covenant. But we also have a constitution. 
And the Constitution is where we agree to operate the, the business of the church in a certain kind of way. The Bible never demands that you have constitutions. However, prudence suggests it's a really, really good idea. And things that constitutions do is they lay out for us how we intend to enact our membership as we understand membership taught in the Bible. How are we going to live that out together? How we're going to carry out the business of our church? How we're going to choose officers, handle donations, these kinds of things. So you become now a member of that church. You understand the confession, the, the covenant, and uh, the, 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 the constitution. And now you're taking part in the Lord's Supper. So after becoming a baptized member, our new convert joins with us in the second ordinance. The first one is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper. And we showed how the Lord's Supper is rooted in the story of God's redemption of his people at Passover. Remember, Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper on Passover night. He was taking the old covenant promises and bringing them into the new we also demonstrated how the supper functions really closely to what you would think of as your best family meal. Everybody gathered together, fellowshipping together. The problems that were happening in the church in Corinth are what really instruct us here. They were treating the supper like it was uh, magic. As long as you got the bread and the wine in you, you were good. <laughs> And they were also allowing their selfish individualism to make their meal, their Lord's Supper meal, divide the church rather than unite the church. They were missing the very most basic point of the Lord's Supper that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. He said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's Paul emphasizing there? One bread, one body. He says, when the church comes together and decides to take the Lord's Supper, they're saying something about themselves as a church. We are the, this body here. Not just we're a part of the universal church, but we're part of this church. We are one in a unique way with these specific fellow members and that's what leads us to believe that when Paul wrote in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, remember that phrase? That what Paul's talking about there is, is not about the, the actual bread of the Lord's Supper, the element, but what he's talking about there is the local church, that body. Whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body. He's saying if, if you fail to discern, to judge, who the church is, who the body is, then you're actually eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. He uses that word discern. It means to make a distinction. That's what the word means. It means to examine something in order to distinguish it from something else. And we think Paul is, is using the word body in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29 the, the same way he used the word body in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he's thinking of that bread as a picture of the local church, the body of Christ locally, the ecclesia, the gathering. That's why, and we noted this when we were here, doing things like um, eating privately in your home and calling at the Lord's Supper or 
having rich people communion and poor people communion or getting drunk while others have nothing to drink is a total abuse of the supper. And these are all the errors that were happening in Corinth. The the Lord's Supper is intended to identify who the body is locally to display her unity in Christ, her Lord. And in that sense, when the members of Grace Fellowship Church participate in the Lord's Supper together, when they remember Christ together, they mark themselves off from everyone else and they say, we're the Christians here. And as one body, they are all together fellowshipping in the moment with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation, koinonia? Is it not fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All the members come together to the table and meet with Christ together. But we pointed out that clearly we're not the only Christians in the world. And that is why we noted that certain uh, members of other churches are more than welcome to come and join us at the table. Uh, For an example, we looked at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week when we, this is Luke and some others, were gathered together to break bread. Could be he's talking about the Lord's Supper with that phrase, to break bread. Paul talked with them, the church that was gathering at Troas, intending to depart on the next day. When we were gathered together to break bread. So if Luke intends by that, and it's sort of 50-50 that that he's talking about the Lord's Supper. When we were gathered together to break bread, if that's the Lord's Supper, then here you have an example of what is often called visiting communion. Which is meaning here that Paul and Luke and the others who were traveling with them joined with First Baptist Church of Troas in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. When we were gathered together, we took bread. So we argued for that practice of what has historically been called, and listen carefully, there is, remember this, open communion, closed D communion with a D, and close, no D, communion. Open says, anybody and their brother or their sister, we don't even care really if you're Christians, can come and join us at the table. Closed with a D says, only the members of this local church can participate in this celebration of the Lord's Supper. Close communion says, all the members of this church, we want you to come. And if you're a member, uh, a baptized member of a gospel-preaching evangelical church, we would love for you to join with us. Then we considered the organization of the church in particular. We looked at the officers. We saw that the church has only two sets of officers. You might divide these into leaders and model servants. Because everybody serves, so there's leaders and there's model servants. So first of all, the leaders. Elders, men, and only men, qualified men, not just any man. Qualified men chosen from among the congregation in order to what? To lead the congregation. To lovingly, humbly exercise authority in the congregation. They're called elders, pastors, shepherds, stewards, leaders, at least five different titles for the exact same office. And these elders, these leaders, serve by lovingly leading. So we looked at lots of texts. Here's one for you, 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God. By the way, Peter says, 
I'm also an elder. Besides being an apostle, I'm an elder of my local church, and I'm writing to you, my fellow elders of other churches. And he says to them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not have responsibility for all the churches, but just the flock that is among you. Exercising oversight. Leading. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then you've got the members of the church. What are they doing? They're lovingly submitting to their leaders. That's why Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. We ask you, brothers... Two things here, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Interesting. And then we noted that members have a job to do uh, with prospective new members, right? The what and the who, but they take that what and who and they apply that toward their leaders as well. The members of the church need to guard the what. In other words, the members of the church need to make sure that the gospel is being preached in the church. And if not, they need to remove those leaders. They need to guard the who of their leaders, meaning they need to make sure their leaders are living lives that are consistent with that gospel. And if they're not, they need to remove those leaders. And finally, we looked at that second office. There's The leaders and there's the model servants, which we call deacons. And deacons, we proposed, are men and women who are qualified model servants to set apart, um, who are set apart to assist the elders. How are they assisting the elders? By, By guarding the elders' ministry of prayer and word, by organizing the church's service to others, especially to the needy, and seeking to preserve church unity as they do. And throughout this series, we touched on the sad process of church discipline, the process of a person being removed from membership for their unrepentant sin. There you go. In other words, we covered a lot of ground. But hopefully just looking at it, seeing how it all fits together is helpful. Or I could just say all of this in a different way. I'm going to tell you a story. Whether a dream or my imagination, I do not know, but I shall tell you about two men and how their lives intersected with Grace Fellowship Church. Let's call them Ben and Amir. And if you're here this morning and your name is Ben or Amir, we're not thinking about you. Let's just get that clear. Uh, Our imaginary Ben is a member of Grace Fellowship Church. He's 33 years old. Mary has a couple of kids. Amir is a 23-year-old atheist who just joined the same engineering firm that Ben works at. Over a few months, Ben has several meaningful conversations with Amir, and that leads them to having a regular Bible reading time together. One evening, while he's watching the hockey game, Amir suddenly feels the weight of his sin before God. Can't shake it. The verses he read last week about being under the wrath of God, it's plaguing him. And yet the verses about what Jesus did in suffering in the place of sinners are giving him hope. And before he knows it, Amir falls to his knees while the game is blaring on in the television. He prays and he asks God to forgive him of his sins. And he puts all of his hope and confidence in Jesus Christ to save him. 
And the next morning, Amir can't wait to see Ben at work. Ben is thrilled at the news, and he invites Amir to come to church with him on Sunday. Amir's glad to go. He loves singing praise to God, hearing God's word read and preached, and building friendships with all these people who, who follow Jesus. After a short time, Amir asks Ben about baptism. They read about it in the Bible study they were doing, and Amir heard about a class at church. So Ben and Amir attend the baptism class together. And there, Amir is convinced of a couple of things. First of all, that he really is trusting on Christ. And second, that he would really like to obey Jesus and get baptized. So Amir writes out his story of how God saved him, and he sends that to Pastor Pat. Pastor Pat sets a time to get together with Amir. He invites Ben to join them, and he asks Amir to explain his understanding of the gospel and describe how God saved him from his sins. Amir's way of expressing things is a little bit different, but it's clear he's professing faith in Jesus, and he's confessing the biblical gospel. Not only that, his entire life is different from what it was. He, He loves the things of God. He loves the people of God. He loves God. So with the, elder, with the other elders, Pastor Pat sends out Amir's testimony of how God saved him to all the members of the church. And the members who haven't met Amir yet, they find him, meet him on a Sunday. Some other members have him over for lunch, rejoice in hearing his testimony. At the next members meeting, the elders recommend to the members that they accept Amir as a new member and that he be baptized. And Ben and a few others stand up at the members' meeting and speak about the evidences of God's grace that they have observed in Amir's life. Then a vote is taken. The members vote in favor of accepting Amir as a new member once he gets baptized. And they have, they, they've read what he believes. They, they see how his life is being shaped to Christ. All the members affirm that he appear, this appears to be a, a genuine work of God. We can acknowledge both his who and his what. Shortly after that meeting, Amir is baptized during a Sunday service. And since his membership hinged on that baptism, he now becomes a member of Grace Fellowship Church. Later in the service, he participates in the Lord's Supper for the very first time, identifying himself not only with his crucified, risen, reigning, returning Lord, but with all the Lord's people in this place too. In fact, every time he takes the Lord's Supper, he actively ponders what Christ did, where Christ is, and how Christ will return. And as he looks around the room, he he considers how that's true for everybody who's joining him at the table. These are my people, he thinks. And he fellowships together with them, with Jesus. And not only them. Amir is learning that there are many churches that preach Jesus. And since his church is in a big city, he delights when baptized members of other evangelical churches from places like Dubai or Dublin or the Dominican show up on a Lord's Supper Sunday and the church extends hospitality and enjoys fellowshipping with Christ with them. He particularly enjoys reading through the membership covenant out loud. He thinks about all the Bible verses he's promising to obey and loves the sound of all these fellow members around him doing the same. It's always humbling to think of where he needs to grow and yet comforting to think he's on the same path with so many others. Soon Amir is caught up in the warp and woof of church life. He's greeting people on Sunday mornings, praying along with fellow members on Sunday nights, in a members group at Ben's house on Fridays. He also jumps into a foundations class, eager beaver, and he spends spends lots and lots of his social time with other young adults. He is loving life. 
Then his company downsizes. And Amir gets fired. And he's looking for work. But it's not going well. His industry is changing, and he was not prepared. Weeks turn into months. Rejection letters. Increasing debt. He's discouraged. Where's the Lord? Why is this happening to me? He gets angry at life. Even though he has more time on his hands, he's spending less and less of it with his fellow church members. He's not returning Ben's texts. He keeps being tired on member group night. Soon he's missing a lot of church. Friends are from church, they're calling, they're trying to chase him down, but he never seems to make it out to anything. And once he finally does get a new job, Amir pours himself into it. He's got bills to pay. He needs to impress the new boss. No time for church stuff. Anyway, he's good with God. I mean, after all, he was baptized. After several months of this, Ben sets up a breakfast with Amir. They catch up on the new job, and then Ben reminds Amir of what he promised in the membership covenant. Ben makes it clear. He's calling on Amir to come back to church. Amir hangs his head in shame. Tells Ben he'll be back on Sunday. But when Sunday morning comes, he panics. He watches some rando church service online and tells himself that's good enough. A few more months of this go by until Ben tells Amir, we need to meet again. And this time he's going to bring Rocky along. Rocky's one of the young adults that uh, Amir really had connected with. So Amir invites them over to his house, and after praying, Ben and Rocky read some of Matthew 18 to Amir and tell Amir, we're now at stage two of church discipline. They make it clear that Amir is in sin by disobeying texts like Hebrews 10.25 that call on us to regularly meet together with the Lord's people. And they plead with him that this is not good for his soul. Amir listens. He listens carefully to his two friends. And then it is like a fog is lifted from his eyes. He tears up and he says and admits, I've been avoiding church. He confesses his sins to his friends and he asks them to pray for him. He promises to come back on Sunday and sure enough, he does. And it's a Lord's Supper Sunday and Amir is so glad to admit his failings and be restored with the Lord's people as he meets with Christ at his table. The bread and wine never tasted so sweet. This little episode of wandering has changed Amir. He's a man on a mission now and soon he's right back into church life, running hard after the Lord with the Lord's people. One of those people interests him a little more than others. Her name is Sherry, and she seems to be quite interested in him. Before you know it, they're married with a daughter of their own. Many, many years go by, and Amir's godliness and character distinguish him in the church. His daughter respects him. His wife loves him. He serves. He teaches sometimes, and it's really good. And people in his member group speak of how much he helps them to understand the, the word of God and counsel them in their lives. He seems to have a special place in his heart for new believers. Always has some little group of guys he's meeting with and praying for. The elders have noticed this as well. So when a survey goes out at the annual business meeting to the members, asking them who might serve well as a new Elder, Amir's name is at the top of the list. 
Soon, Amir is being formally evaluated for the office of elder. The other elders look deeply at his life and agree the members should consider him as a potential future elder. So the, the members then evaluate Amir's life on the survey the elders gave them. With excellent results from all of this, Amir is formally presented to the members as a candidate to become an elder. And at the next members meeting, a vote's held. The church votes overwhelmingly in favor of calling Amir to be one of her elders. He's installed as a new elder the following week and steps seamlessly into the role, helping to lead the only church he's ever known. One of Amir's greatest joys is in being an elder is watching Ben, the deacon. He loves to watch Ben flourish as a deacon. Even though Ben has become a huge success in his field, and Ben was the first one to share the gospel with Amir, and he was the first one to disciple Amir, he has never looked down on Amir. And that's just Ben, a model servant in the church. Ben was like an elder cheerleader. In fact, Ben was always looking for ways to take some of the more practical needs off the plate of elders like Amir so that they could carry on with shepherding and leading the church. Ben loved to serve like this. Many more years go by, and Amir reaches a point where he thinks it's time to stop serving in the office of elder. Although he is greatly respected in the church, age and physical health have caught up with him so that he can no longer fulfill the demands of that particular role. He does, however, love to teach Grace Kids 3, and the kids in church love now Grandpa Amir. He prays for them all every day. He's frequently telling them of Jesus. He's also been known to distribute the odd candy. <laughs> One autumn morning, the church wakes up to sad news. During the night, Amir's bad heart finally failed. He went to bed that night, and he woke up in the presence of his Savior. The entire church gathered that evening. There were tears of sadness mixed with tears of joy. Even the ones that had only known Grandpa Amir a few years loved him and how they will miss him. But to think that Amir was now holding another cup and looking at Jesus, it was too much to take in. What a thought, forever with his Lord. And to think that a day was coming when all of them would be together again, forever with their Lord. What a thought. After the funeral, the deacons went and met with Sherry, Amir's wife. She was sad at the loss of her husband, but not despairing. Not only that, she was thrilled she was in a church with deacons. Her own health wasn't that great. And Amir had always insisted on doing the mowing and shoveling and keeping the budget. She was a little bit lost, and especially since their only child, their only daughter, had tragically died in a car accident some 15 years earlier. There were no relatives to speak of. She was a widow indeed. Soon the deacons had everything figured out. One was helping Sherry get up to speed on keeping her budget. Another put together a little team to mow, plant, water, and shovel. And one of the female deacons tapped the shoulder of a few other sisters in the church, and they started a little care group just to meet with her month by, month by month until Sherry's last day on earth. And so Grace Fellowship Church kept plugging along for many, many decades 
bringing in members, celebrating the ordinances, preaching God's word, sending out members to other churches, sending members to the mission field, shepherding the flock of God among them at any given time, raising up elders and deacons, planting churches, occasionally having to discipline some out of the membership, enjoying days of prosperity and peace, and struggling through their days of difficulty and potential disunity and strife. Once they even had a rogue senior, senior pastor who started to preach a false gospel. It, it took a while to see, but eventually the other elders had to ask the members to remove their senior pastor. It was so sad. But once it was all done, all kinds of other sins in that man's life were unearthed, and the church was so glad that she was spared from being led astray. A deep seriousness came over all the members in those days. Everyone was taking stock of themselves. And then one day, while they were in the middle of their Sunday morning worship service, Jesus returned. And of what followed, I cannot speak. For I beheld things too wonderful for words. Here is the church we wish to be, dear friends. Conversion, baptism, membership, the Lord's Supper, glory. An elder-led congregational church where the members guard the gospel, the deacons serve, the elders lead, if we live this out, you really will have your best life now. But as good as that life is, it is always only pointing forward to a new life to come. A life of unending clarity, sinlessness, joy, and fellowship with God, our maker. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's sing to our Savior together and then take the Lord's Supper together. Please take your song sheets. Join with us as we sing this precious hymn written by Charles Spurgeon. It is a communion hymn. Amidst us, our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands points to his wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board, the, the table, when at his table sits the Lord. The wine, how rich, the bread, how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. Let's stand and sing together.